The reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Mark. Morning, Arcadia. I uh, admit I went a little bit long in first service, and uh, I admit I didn't change anything, so (laughs) you get the message. My name is Frank, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. If you're new and you saw that video, you, you might be going, wait a minute, I thought the guy on the video was the lead pastor of Redemption Church. He is. He's the lead pastor of all the Redemption Churches, all 10 of our congregations. I'm just the one here. I work for Tyler, and, uh, so, and if you're still confused, I am too, so that's fine. Um, we're glad that you're here today. Uh, I want to start this morning with something else, um, uh, kind of a, just a, something interesting happened this week, kind of a big week. Some of you have been walking through this with me for a while. Um, Kirk, I'm actually glad you're here. I just texted you and chastised you for not being here, so check your phone. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that's, what, that's what's in store for you. If you decide to join this church and you don't show up, I text you every Sunday morning. So, uh, so uh, many of you know, about 15 years ago, as I started to get deeper and deeper into prison ministry, I was introduced to a couple of guys who are wonderful artists, and uh, not only wonderful artists, but pretty good theologians as well. And we have two of their paintings and letters out in our lobby, Joe, Joe Camara and, and uh, Charlie Robeson. Joe was sentenced um, 17 and a half years ago to 24 years in prison, and Charlie was sentenced 17 and a half years ago to 17 and a half years in prison. Joe and Charlie have been, um, not by choice necessarily, but uh, because the state just continued to keep them together everywhere they went. They've become very, very good friends, and I write and visit both of them. 
And um, uh, Charlie on Thursday got out. He was released. Now he's still on probation. Um, and uh, Charlie, Charlie's story is interesting because, uh, first of all, his wife didn't leave him. She hung in there for 17 and a half years. She and, her, and their children live in uh, South Scottsdale uh, around Oak and 68th Street. And um, Charlie's not allowed to go and live with them just yet. It'll be a little while yet. Um, he's also not allowed to go to church just yet, so otherwise he would be here uh, this morning. It'll be probably another month or six weeks before he's allowed to go to uh, church. But uh, I met Charlie 15 years ago, started writing him and visiting him in prison. We developed a very close relationship. I'm still very close with Joe as well. I'll still continue to visit uh, Joe. But uh, in 15 years of knowing this guy pretty well, um, here's a picture of him. It's hard to see. I'm sorry. It's a little bit dark. I took it on my phone. But there he is. At, uh, he had, he had, uh, they'd taken a Department of Corrections van, picked him up at Florence, and drove him up to the probation office at 24th Avenue in Indianola, let him out of the van, and that was the first time in 15 years of knowing Charlie I had ever seen him in something other than an orange jumpsuit. So I was like, oh, wow, he looks like a normal dude, you know? And so he, there he is. His, his whole life is in that one box. The other hand is, is uh, his papers. Uh, he got out of the van I, van, I yelled at him. His family, his wife, his mother, his brother, and his uncle, um, they got hung up somewhere and got there 10 minutes after he arrived. So I was the only one there to greet him when he got out. Uh, so he came over, and he, he gave me a hug, and I took his picture real quick. We got yelled at by the Department of Corrections officer because apparently he was still in the custody of the state until he's turned over to his probation officer. So I'm in trouble now with the state. But anyway, there he is. And then uh, Saturday morning, we got to, a few of us got to go to a, a party that was held for him out in East Mesa at sort of a rawhide-type uh, restaurant that um, somebody in his family has a connection to, and they were able to get it for free for an hour and a half on on a Friday, on Wednesday, uh, Saturday morning, and so there's Charlie in the middle there, surrounded by friends and family. About 200 people showed up to this party. He has an amazing, this is unusual for a prisoner. You need to understand that. This is very unusual for a convict to have a support system like this, but about 200 people showed up, uh, and look how nice he looks. Um, his uncle, so he goes to his probation office officer and meets with her. They get that done. Then they went to Sweet Tomatoes and ate for six, seven, eight hours. I don't know, something like that. Uh, and then his uncle took him to Men's Warehouse and bought him uh, a few things to wear. So there he is. And there's Kirk, who I just chat. There he is. So Kirk, uh, for eight or ten years, has been going to all of Charlie's uh, hearings and, and court dates and all those things just to show support. He's been writing Charlie. This is the first time Kirk and Charlie have ever met in person was at this party, so it was really kind of an exciting time. Next picture. Um, yeah, here's the last picture. So uh, Charlie's kind of in the back there, standing right in front of him, the shorter woman with the blonde hair and the white shirt. That's his wife, Shelly, who's hung in there for 17 and a half years. Uh, some uh, other uh, friends, and uh, actually it's this couple's family over here. The guy on the end there, Steve, uh, is the one who's given him a job. So Charlie already has a job coming out. So I... You know, I wasn't going to show you this, and then Stephanie's like, you need to show these people this because they know about this, and so let's celebrate this victory that uh, is happening. But also understand, yeah, it's great. Um, it's not over. It's going to be really, really hard, really hard. Um, uh, Kirk and I got to the venue uh, Saturday morning, uh, you know, a few minutes early, and we were there when uh, we, we arrived right when uh, Shelly and Charlie drove up, 
And uh, so we got a little bit of time with them before we went in, because we knew once we got in there, we'd probably never be able to talk to them again, really. But um, we got a little bit of time with them, and, and Charlie got out. Remember now, 17 and a half years, what we take for granted. He got out, and he showed me his cell phone, and he goes, man, I'm so excited. I sent my first text this morning. I'm so proud of myself. It just the things that we take for granted, he's going to have to figure all this out and uh, negotiate all this. So anyway, there's the story of Charlie. We're hoping that in another month or six weeks, uh, he'll show up here and, and we can um, meet him then. He, by the way, he's a musician, so he may end up up here as well. So let me pray and we'll get into uh, this message today out of Matthew 6. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for victories. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for uh, just the unbelievable support system that Charlie and Shelley have had all these years. I wish that could be true about all prisoners. Uh, it would be so helpful. Uh, but God, um, uh, you have your plan and your purpose, and so we submit ourselves to that. And now as we open your word and read from this word, we just ask that you would uh, enlighten us, that you would, uh, your Holy Spirit would uh, transform our hearts and our minds and, and open our ears and our eyes to what you have to say to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, by the way, let me just add, one of the reasons that Redemption Church is so involved with Alongside Ministries, which is a prison transition ministry, is because most of these convicts don't have a support system when they get out, and so we want to help with, uh, uh, if they don't have a family, at least they have Alongside Ministries, and, and they have that support system. So that's one of the reasons why we're so deeply involved uh, with them as well. So let me say this. This is how I want to start this message. And it's, for me personally, it's just one of the most important things that I could ever communicate um, to a congregation, to a people, to anybody. This is so important to me. Uh, I talk about this all the time behind the scenes and probably not enough on Sunday morning. Uh, but I just want you to hear this, okay? So first and foremost, a preacher, so me, that would be me, or David, or last week, Cody, a preacher, first and foremost, has to be a learner, has to be a student, has to submit himself to the word and the wisdom of God. And the biblical text must preach and teach the preacher first, first and foremost. What the preacher is doing in studying for Sunday morning or a Wednesday night Bible study or whatever is not studying so that I can impart this vast knowledge to you but rather I am studying it so that I can be transformed first by the word of God, that I can be submissive to God's will first and foremost, because without that, I really can't preach and teach. So I must proclaim the gospel first and foremost to myself, because I need the gospel and I need biblical teaching as much or more than anybody in the room where I am standing and, and preaching and teaching. But then your responsibility in the midst of this is that everybody, everybody who, else, who is in the room, you need to be praying, even before you get here, you need to pray that you would submit yourselves not to me and my teaching, but to the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit would then take my words and give you the discernment to see what is truly of God and what is really just my superfluous nature and be able to discern between those two and then be able to apply the word of God into your life. And I know that's hard for some of you to understand that I might actually say something superfluous, but I do. And you need the Holy Spirit to help you with that. 
so that your lives also might be transformed by God and his word and his wisdom. Here, I'm going to say it a different way, a little bit differently. If the preacher has an agenda, any agenda other than his own sanctification and the gospel-centered shepherding of the flock that God has entrusted to him to steward, and if those in the flock have an agenda any agenda other than submitting to the Holy Spirit and receiving the proclamation of the gospel and the wisdom of God's word, we're really not getting anywhere then. That's just the truth. And this is always important. Every Sunday, every, whenever we gather to study God's word, this is always important. But it's especially important right now. Uh, Cody introduced us to Lent last week. said this is an important time. Because this is a time when we have to remember what God has done for us. We have, to, we have to be so bathed in this and so prepared for Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We have to remember what God has done for us. We have to realize what God is called to, uh, calling us to. And we also have to recognize that it is only, only by his sovereign power and grace that we're saved and equipped to be called to who we're supposed to be. Which is we're supposed to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And to do what he calls us to do, which is to make disciples, Jesus tells us in Matthew 38. And Paul tells us in in 2 Corinthians 5 to be ambassadors for the gospel. That that we are to uh, be helping God to reconcile sinners to himself. So we're looking at these four marks of our call during this time of Lent. Fasting, prayer today almsgiving next week, and then scripture reading on the 20th of March. So today, prayer, and really that section of prayer is verses 5 through 13, but we have to have the context of this, and this is why we're going to look not only at Matthew 6, 1 through 18, which Mark read for us, but we're also going to look at verses 19 through 21. Jesus sets this lesson in context, and we have to understand that greater context for us to really get prayer the way we need to get it from uh, Jesus. And this is sort of about the midway point of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the big idea. The gospel calls you and I, it calls us, to bend our will and praise to God, not for others to bend their will and praise to us. That's Jesus' big idea in this section. The gospel calls us to bend our will and praise to God, not for others to bend their will and praise to us. Jesus' prayer lesson comes in the context of what is known for religious Jews as the three pillars of piety. I want you to notice that there's actually four things that Jesus talks about in there. Three of them are recognized by the professional religious Jewish people there as pillars of piety that everybody is supposed to practice. Acts of righteousness or almsgiving, generosity, Okay, verses 1 through 4, prayer, verses 5 through 13, and then fasting, verses 16 through 18. And some of you are like, hey, I'm good at math. I know you skipped two verses there. 14 and 15, good catch. Jesus throws something else in there that we'll talk about in a few minutes that I think is, is uh, really, really interesting. And what, what we need to understand is that these three pillars of piety are very good things to practice. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't practice these. His assumption is, in fact, that we are practicing these things, but rather how we practice them is the issue. You heard Cody last week teach out of Isaiah 58 and say, at the end of his message, he said, 
here's what fasting is supposed to look like and what it's supposed to do, but he started with, here's what God is saying is, is, is wrong with our fasting. And that's so important to understand that. It, and the reason is because people, even religious, pious, holy type people, we just have this amazing tendency to take things that are meant from God and somehow, some way, subtly or, or even uh, bombastically manipulate them into ways to exalt ourselves. It's amazing how we can take something like prayer and make it all about us when it's really about God and bending our will to him. And Jesus takes up that issue here with all of these things. So let's start with verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. And here he's talking about your righteousness, all of these pillars of piety. This is his thesis statement, verse 1, before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, now he's talking specifically about almsgiving, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Some, text, some translations translate it, they have already received their reward. Therefore, there's no reward in heaven from God for them because they've received their reward from man. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's his thesis statement in verse 1. Are you practicing piety and righteousness so that you will be affirmed and esteemed by other human beings, or are you doing it for God? The great preacher, Alistair Begg, says this, God is well aware of the pride in our hearts whereby we would take glory for ourselves and deny rightful glory to God. We are machines at this, every single one of us. We're good at doing this. And I, and I love how Jesus pulls absolutely no punches here. Um, Cody used a term last week that I think we're just going to go ahead and incorporate into the, into the culture of redemption Arcadia. Uh, last week he said that Isaiah had pulled on his sassy pants. Well, Jesus has got a pair of those sassy pants too, and he's pulling them on as he talks and preaches here. He says, listen, if you're doing what you're doing for a claim before man, then congratulations because you've already earned it. You've got your 15 minutes in the sun, and, and when you stand before God, he's not going to care and he's not going to recognize it because you did it for the wrong reasons. If you're doing this to be esteemed before human beings, you're doing it for the wrong reason. I, and I'll tell you, i, I, I got to tell you, this is hard for us. One of the most common conversations I have with people is, well, I may be doing it for the wrong reasons, but it's at least it's a good thing. No, that's not a helpful thing. God really cares about this. If your motivation is wrong, if your heart is wrong, he cares deeply about this. He's saying, if you're just doing this for the affirmation of man and all you care about is what other people think of you, Congratulations, you've got your reward. Enjoy it while it lasts. And by the way, it's fleeting. It's only going to last just a second. And then he repeats his point in verse 2 when he gets into the specifics of giving. He says, don't give to the needy so that you're praised by others. What good is that? All it does is make you a hypocrite. Now, many of you know that the, the word uh, hypocrite in first century Koine Greek literally means one who wears a mask and pretends to be something that they are not. It was a word that was taken from first century Greek theater. 
Because that's what they did in Greek theater, was they would wear a mask and pretend that they were someone else. So Jesus is using this word to remind us that we are hypocrites. We wear a mask and pretend to be someone else anytime we do the right things for the wrong reason. I'll say it again. This matters deeply to God, that when you do the right things, you do them for the right reasons. So Jesus says that when you give to the needy, and really when you serve in any capacity, Don't sound your trumpet. Don't beat your chest. Don't make a big deal about it. Just quietly go about your business. In fact, that reference to don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, you know what that actually means? It means Jesus is saying that when you give and when you serve, it should be so secret that you don't even know you're doing it. And I know some of you are like, well, how how does that happen? That seems goofy. It's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. It's a literary technique to get our attention to see how important God thinks this is. He uses exaggeration to make his point. Your giving, your service, your good deeds are not about you. The point of you serving, the point of you giving, the point of you doing what God calls you to do in joyful and gracious response to what he's already done in your life is not for the purpose of you building your spiritual resume. In fact, in Christianity, the only spiritual resume that there exists that is a true spiritual resume has one word on it. What's the word? Jesus. That's it. Here's my spiritual resume. Jesus did it all at the cross. I didn't do anything. That's my spiritual resume. My righteousness, my justification, my sanctification is all in him. So those of you that are busy putting together resumes, this is the easiest resume you'll ever put together. Even for you hunting peckers, it's just five letters, J-E-S-U-S. Capitalize the J. And that's it. Hit print. You're done with your spiritual resume. Now, is it hard to serve secretly? Is it, is it hard to keep quiet about what good people we are? Isn't it challenging to only receive praise in secret? Sure it is. You and I are so insecure. We're so anxious about what others think of us. We're so worried that we won't get noticed for the awesome human beings we are that we do struggle to keep quiet about this stuff. But it's important to Jesus. I've said this many times. There's this parable in Luke chapter 14. Great parable. Essentially, Jesus is saying, look, there's a, there's a big high-status party, important party All the important, cool people are going to this party, and you've been invited. When you go to this party, don't walk in and walk up to the front to a place of honor where everybody else is going to see you and go, ooh, they get to sit in front. Don't do that. Here's why you shouldn't do that. Because if you walk up to the front and sit in a place of honor, kind of exalting yourself, and then somebody more important than you shows up, And the person in charge of the party has to walk up in front of everybody and humiliate you by saying, hey, man, you're sitting in the wrong seat. You need to move to the back. And everybody sees you. He says, you're going to be humiliated if that happens. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you don't humble yourself, God will do it for you. Anybody ever experienced God's humbling in their life? I have. I'd much rather humble myself. It's a lot less painful. Jesus says, instead, what you should do when you get to the party is you should sit in the back. Keep quiet. And then maybe 
Maybe uh, that position of honor won't get filled, and then the person in charge of the party will come and get you and say, hey, guess what? First class opened up. We can bring you up there. And then you have your day in the sun. And he ends the parable saying this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Tim Keller says it like this. Now listen to this. He says, I know some people in church who spend more time talking about their good deeds than actually doing their good deeds. That's a problem. Now, admittedly, there's some tension here. We are called to be obedient to God. And many times those acts of obedience and service must take place publicly and people will not be able to help but notice it. That's all true. But God would say when that happens, and it's going to happen, you need to check your heart. The most important thing is to be in touch with your heart. You may, in fact, receive worldly accolades and human accolades for public obedience, but don't let your heart bend towards that. Don't let your heart rest in that treasure because it's really not treasure. Instead, humbly obey and serve, humbly receive the compliments, and then quietly and humbly move on. Here's how Wayne Grudem says it. One's internal motivation is Jesus' central concern. Our internal motivation is Jesus' central concern. Then Jesus gets to prayer, and you're like, wow, this message was supposed to be on prayer. It took us a long time to get there. We had to set the context because he's going to say the same thing about prayer, and then he's going to say the same thing as well about fasting. So verses 5 through 13, and then when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. He's on this word now. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they might be seen by others. Oh, look how pious I am. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. This this room that, that Jesus says here, the Greek word literally means a windowless storeroom a windowless storeroom. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up, uh, up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by, for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. That word Gentiles is another way of saying unbelievers. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be our name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our, give us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into a temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus starts the pillar of prayer with the same warning. Don't pray for human adulation. Now, is Jesus saying that the only time we can pray is in a windowless, windowless storeroom? So at work, we got to find some utility room where we can lock ourselves in and pray. It's the only time we can pray. Or maybe we live in the rural sections of Arizona, and so we build a barn that doesn't have any animals in it, but that's our prayer barn. Or maybe you live in the city, and you buy a tough shed with no windows, and you have a little prayer tough shed. Is that what he's saying? That's the only time you can pray? No. He's using hyperbole again. It's a literary technique to gain our attention. What he's saying is do not pray for show. Instead, the purpose of prayer is to align your will with God's, to bend your will to God's, to submit your will to God's will. And that leads perfectly into commenting about verses 7 and 8 and then, and then talking about this prayer that Jesus, this sort of template for prayer that he gives us. Verse 7, he says this, Do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles. Those are strong words there. 
He's, he's being very strong again. Literally what the Greek says is repeated words of nonsense and meaningless noise. Repeated words of nonsense and meaningless noise. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that true prayer is not about technique or method, but about a relationship. And so repeating words simply for effect is not going to get you anywhere. You're not going to be able to manipulate God with this. And then verse 8 says, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the unbelievers. Don't pray like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Here's what he's saying. The Gentiles are trying to manipulate God. The unbelievers are the ones that go to God and say, God, here's my agenda and here's what I think I need. Now, would you please fix it so that I have it, so that my agenda is honored before you and so that I get all the things that I think I need. That, he's saying, that's not the way you're supposed to pray. God, God is not a cosmic vending machine. Don't pray like that. Pray for connection. Pray for relationship. But this verse is obviously troubling for some of us. I mean, you look at it and you go, well, if he already knows what we need, why do we bother praying? What's the point in that? And that, that question is a good question because it makes a lot of sense. And I understand why we would ask that question. But again, you have to take it in context. If prayer is about relationship, and it is, the results of prayer have more to do with connection and reverence and submission than with goodies. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus then provides us with a template, so to speak. And this template has six petitions or six asks that help us to keep our priorities straight and, and, and help keep us from that meaningless noise and repeated words of nonsense. There's three petitions about the preeminence and superiority of God. And then there's three petitions about personal needs in a community context. And so let me say this before we get into those six petitions. First of all, praying that you have money to meet your bills, praying that you get into the school that you want to get into, praying that you get the job that you applied for, praying that the deal closes, praying that she says yes, praying that he doesn't ask you out. Those are all good prayers. Those are all good prayers. And Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't pray them, but he's saying you have to get on board with this first. So, number one, petition one. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Three words there, very simple. Father acknowledges that he's the creator of everything. That gives him all authority, every bit of authority. There is no maverick molecule out of his control. Heaven, God's rule is sovereign and complete. Again, no maverick molecule out of his control. Hallowed be your name. The highest honor and glory is reserved for God and God only. So that first petition is, give me a right understanding of who God is. And I'm not God. Second petition, your kingdom come. Not any of these worldly kingdoms that we're working so hard on building. Your kingdom is the only kingdom that matters. N not my kingdom in the marketplace. Not my kingdom in my home. Not my kingdom in my neighborhood. Not my kingdom in my school. Here you go. Not my kingdom in my church. Those are all worldly kingdoms that have nothing to do with his one true kingdom. And that's the kingdom we should be striving for, which means we love our neighbors, we serve our community, we resource the needy, we welcome and honor the marginalized, the least of these, as Jesus calls them, widows, orphans, and prisoners. Petition number three, your will be done. This is, 
the center of the whole thing. Everything radiates out from those words. Your will be done. This is the whole ball of wax right here. Two weeks ago, I, I mentioned that Paul describes for us very clearly in Ephesians chapter 5 the difference between the wise person and the foolish person. The wise person is the one who bends their will towards God, submits their will to God. The foolish person is the one who's trying to get everybody else to bend their will to them, to submit their will to them. That's the difference between a wise and a foolish person. But admittedly, it's challenging to always get this right. I just speak autobiographically. My selfish nature and my sin get in the way of this part of the prayer. And so I have to pray, God, let your perfect will reign in me. And then petition number four, give us our daily bread. You see, there's nothing wrong with praying for our economic needs. But again, this part of the prayer is not just about economic needs. It's about something even bigger and more important than our economic needs. It's about contentment. It's about finding our contentment and satisfaction in Jesus and Jesus only. Regardless of the stuff that we have and the money we have and the relationships we have, our contentment and satisfaction comes from Jesus. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4. It's a magnificent, the last half of of Philippians 4 is magnificent. He says, I know the secret to life. And the secret to life is contentment in Christ. And he says, listen, I've lived a long time, and I know what it is to have everything I want, to be well-resourced, to be wealthy and well-fed. I know what that's like. But I also know, I've lived a long time, I know what it's like to be hungry and not know where my next meal is coming from, to have no money, to be completely beaten up and left for dead. I know what that's like too. And the key here is not my circumstances and my stuff, but rather in each of those situations, whether well-fed or hungry, whether on top of the world or at the very bottom of the, of the lowest valley, the key is that I can do it and, in, and endure it in Christ. Christ can give me satisfaction in any of those circumstances. That's the secret to life. It's contentment not in our stuff and our circumstances, but in Jesus. And then he says to the Philippians, he says, and my God will certainly supply all of his needs for you and your needs according to his riches and glory. So God's going to meet your needs. He's not going to meet your wants. He's not going to meet your felt needs. He's going to meet your legitimate needs. And this is where it gets hard. I admit I'm a meat eater. I like, I like a really good steak. So occasionally it would be nice if I could go and have a, a New York steak or a ribeye. I eat fat. What can I say? Anyway, a ribeye at Mastro's, okay? But God's going to come along and say, you know what? The difference between a hot dog and a steak at Mastro's is your desire and want. What you need is calories. You just need calories, even if it's in the form of a tube steak instead of a New York steak, okay? So you may want to eat at Mastro's, but you're going to have to eat a hot dog, okay? Now, all right, I'm not connecting here. All right, here you go. Arcadians, you may want a kale salad, but he's going to give you an iceberg lettuce salad, okay? Is that, that helpful? Okay, there you go, all right? So, so this, you need to understand, this is about contentment. Proverbs 30 says this, Two things I ask of you, God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Don't give me a bunch, don't let me win the lottery, but don't, don't make me have to steal. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, 
lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? If I get too full, if I get too successful, if I get too wealthy, I'm going to start denying Jesus and think I'm pretty cool. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. You don't want to do that either. Give me this day my daily bread. Number five, forgive us and forgive others. This one's hard. Intellectually, cognitively, we all know and understand the importance of forgiving. Jesus has forgiven us. We need to forgive others. But in the quiet of our hearts, I know every one of us, we're like, "Ah, there's that one one person, two people. We don't want to forgive them. They don't deserve forgiveness. I know forgiveness, and they don't deserve forgiveness. But again, this isn't really as much about the forgiveness because Jesus will get to that in verses 14 and 15, as it is about aligning our wills with God's will. God's will is a will of forgiveness. Therefore, to align your will with his will, it means that we have to be people of forgiveness too. It's about aligning our will with his. And this is not also, some people look at this verse and they argue that this is actually a call for us to go to God every day and ask for salvation every day, to daily secure our salvation. No, it's not. You need to read the whole counsel of the Bible because clearly the Bible teaches that the moment we come to Christ, we are justified, we are made righteous, we are on the road to sanctification, and that justification cannot be taken away from us. Paul says it in Ephesians. He says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's done. It's finished. It's over. You cannot lose your salvation once you're in Christ. And by the way, you can't lose something that you had nothing to do with gaining in the first place. God did it all for you. Rather, this is the prayer that we all need because daily sin interferes with our fellowship with others and with God. So we we need to pray this. And then number six, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Now, we need to understand, God is not the author of temptation. Uh, James, the book of James tells us very clearly, the only author of temptation is our own hearts. Uh, Satan comes and dangles stuff in front of us, but it's our own fallen sinful hearts that goes for that stuff. Our hearts are what need protection. And, And so we should go to God and ask him, to protect our hearts from our heart. We need to do that. And it's also not unthinkable to ask God to protect us from Satan and evil in general anyway. The way to be strong in the face of sin and temptation is not to try harder, but to turn to God. So there's that template of prayer. And by the way, I would say it's really not the Lord's Prayer. I think that's, a, that's not named correctly. The Lord's Prayer is in, in John chapter 17, where Jesus actually prays. This is really more like the disciples' prayer. And it's really just a template to make sure that we get our priorities aligned correctly. God is supreme. His kingdom is desired. We submit to his will. We are content with his provision. We forgive others because we're forgiven. And we count on his strength and wisdom, not ours. Now, Cody mentioned last week that we're going to each week kind of have a little Lent touch point. And he said, so what we're going to do is we're going to fast. If you want to, you don't have to. But if you want to, we're going to fast on Tuesdays from 9 to 5. And so what we would add here to that is on Tuesdays when you're fasting, um, have your smartphone dialed in to Matthew 6. And as you're going through the fast, and it's not easy, I know, as you're going through the fast, pray this prayer. Read it to yourself. Some of you know it by heart. Recite it. So just 
that would be what we would say to kind of add to this. And then verses 14 and 15. For if you give others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I would say, and many of the scholars say this as well, that this is Jesus taking a poke at the professional religious people. It's, it's more of Jesus in his sassy pants here. Jesus is saying that those three pillars, giving, generosity, prayer, and fasting, they're all fine, but they're not complete without a fourth pillar, and that fourth pillar is forgiveness. In a sense, he's adding a fourth pillar, and that is forgiveness. And understand, he, he's also not teaching here that the only way we can earn our forgiveness from God is by forgiving others. No, 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 no. He's saying you have to get the order right. Because you've been forgiven so much by God, by what Jesus did at the cross, he submitted to the cross, because that has happened, you now can go and forgive others. It's a reminder that because we've been forgiven so much, we can only logically and affectively respond by forgiving others. Again, Paul says in Ephesians this, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by the others. Truly, I say to you, you have, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus is saying that fasting is not a bad thing, but if you do fast, you need to make it something that you're doing for God and for others and not for yourself. And then verses 19 through 21, which Mark did not read. I specifically asked him not to read it. This is his summary statement now on what he's just taught. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. One of our greatest treasures that we try to lay up for ourselves on earth is not just money, but it is the praise and adoration of other people. Don't do that, he's saying. Instead, lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure is to be in Jesus, not in the affirmation of human beings. So as we close today, these last couple of minutes, I want to ask a question. We've been talking about these pillars of piety, uh, generosity, prayer, Jesus adds forgiving, I would argue, and then fasting, these these pillars of piety. You're a pious person if you practice these pillars. Uh, you know, culture, our culture, our world has pillars of piety too. They maybe don't necessarily define them that way, but think about it. They have pillars of piety too. What are the world's pillars of piety? What are culture's pillars of piety. I won't discuss them, but I'll, I'll list a few of them for you. Things like, just follow your heart. That's a pillar of piety in our culture. Tolerance. Creation and creature care. Inclusion and diversity. They are things that culture tells us that we must do and we must believe and, and we must harass others about for us to be seen by the rest of the world as good people. You're a good person. You, 
You practice these pillars of piety. You, you declare that you believe in them, and you also are an evangelist for these pillars of piety. You're trying to tell everybody else to do them as well. And I want you to hear me. I am not trying to tear down those pillars. Those things are actually probably all really good things that, that even God would probably call us to do. But in and of themselves, they are missing purpose and power. Have you ever noticed how fickle culture is about what makes you a good person? It changes so fast. How do you even keep up with it? And there's no power in them. In and of themselves, these cultural pillars of piety are missing power and purpose. And going a little bit deeper theologically, hear this. When culture calls us to these pillars of piety, understand, it's not overtly said, but it is implied. It's transactional when culture calls us to do these things. It's transactional. Do these things and believe this ideology, and you will receive praise and adulation, and you might even help you get a job. It's also compulsory. It's compulsory. Don't do these things. Don't believe this ideology, and you will be shunned and penalized. You will be put away. And it's vapid. It's empty. It's void of true power and purpose. Don't think about it. Just do it and do it under your own power. That's the way it's supposed to be done. But Jesus, those are important words. But Jesus, think about this. Jesus goes to the cross and he gives his life out of grace and love. He is the only one that transacts. The only transaction that takes place is at the cross. That's it. He trades his life, his righteousness, his holiness, his purity, his justification for our sin and our filthy rags of religion and self-exaltation. He trades his perfection for our fallenness and we become his righteousness. We become his justification. That's the only transaction that is needed. We just receive it. That's it. And then that leads into this idea of compulsion. Because Jesus goes to the cross for us out of grace and love, we are not mandated or forced to love others and to serve others and to have compassion for others, but rather we love others and we serve others and we have compassion for others because Jesus first loved us and served us and has compassion for us. The word compulsion is not in gospel vocabulary. There is nothing mandatory about what a Christian does, but rather it is inevitable because it is a response in joy and gratitude to what Jesus has already done. So there's no compulsion. And then finally, because Jesus rose from the grave and he is alive, his spirit lives in us. There's nothing vapid about that. The void that we have without God is filled by the resurrected Christ, and that's where we get our power and our purpose. So what we do in Christ is not powerless or vapid. And that's the difference between the story of the gospel in Jesus Christ and the story that the world would like us to believe. And that difference means everything because that is the gospel. Let's pray and we'll go into our time of... Uh, reflection and response. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we just pray that we would fix our eyes on your son, Jesus, and we would understand that, that 
everything that we are and that we can be is found in him. And it's by his power and his grace and love that we can be and do who you call us to be. And that doesn't make us machines, but rather it makes us new creations alive in you. And, and, and for that, we are grateful and filled with joy. So we are called to be conformed to the image of your son. And we are called to be ambassadors of your gospel and ambassadors of reconciliation. Give us the power to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name.